Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I liked it very much. Yeah, you're welcome. So uh, a couple of things to announce to you and kind of get you uh, on the page. Uh, I think you guys know this, but for the last, I don't know, 15 years, we've been uh, wrestling with uh, L.A. County about the possibility of upgrading our facility, and uh, we have fought tooth and nail, and uh, I am happy to tell you that we have in our hands permits to actually do some work. Yeah, so that's really good news. Uh, that means now the work starts, and uh, so if you're interested in getting the, the lowdown, we're kind of in a pre-launch phase to the capital campaign. It'll officially launch on February 26th, so you can kind of start anticipating, but if you'd like more information about what we're doing, you want to see artist rendering, you want to see some blueprints, um, that's going to happen at some town hall meetings. There's one that is going to be a Zoom call this coming Wednesday night, then Thursday night there's a meeting here. Uh, in a couple weeks, there'll be a meeting at our Brazil campus and another one here. So go online and go to the Right Now page. You can get some of those details. You can RSVP for those meetings. And uh, we'll just have a long conversation and in- answer questions and all of that stuff. So be prayerful. Uh, we've been in some beta testing with some of this. We've had some groups in and presented some of the material and corrected mistakes and figured out stuff. So hopefully uh, it's going to feel good to you to see what's happening and how God is leading. And we're trusting that. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me ask you this question. What contingencies are keeping you from a Merry Christmas? What contingencies are keeping you from a Merry Christmas? And we could stop there and just broaden that question. What contingencies are keeping you from a fulfilling life? If only this, then I would have a Merry Christmas. If only I understood this, if only I got this, if only this happened, if only this didn't happen, if only this went away. What are the contingencies that are keeping you from a Merry Christmas? And so as we think about that, we're talking about a simple song. And uh, so let me just tell you a story. It turns out that uh, the person we know is Dr. Seuss. His name is Theodore Giesel. And Theodore Giesel was an interesting, complex sort of human being. He was a religious person, a Christian person, and uh, he infused a lot of information into his books that kind of linger in there. But he had a story in his head, and the story in his head was something about a Grinch. And the first time he published anything about the Grinch was in 1955, and he published a little short story called Hubbub and the Grinch. Hubbub and the Grinch. But he couldn't get away from the story. It didn't leave him after he had written that story. It continued to linger in his heart, and it continued to linger in his mind. And he felt like there was more work to be done, and there was more story to be told. And when his biography was written, there was a lot of disclosure about what was going on with him that caused him to be so married to this story. And what was going on with him back in 1955 and 56 and 57 is his wife had become ill. And he was really struggling. And then he was also had gotten sort of sideways with the commercialization of Christmas. 
1956 and 57. If only he could see us now. Yeah, so he had gotten a little disgruntled about that. And he tells a story that, that on one December 26th, he was looking in the mirror and he noticed in his own demeanor, and this is a quote, a certain kind of grinchiness about himself. So it turns out that the story of the Grinch that stole Christmas is somewhat autobiographical. It's, it's really about him, and to me, that changes the nature of the story. So I want you to think about that this morning. I want you to think about the fact that you're the Grinch. And there are a lot of contingencies to the happiness and the welcoming of a Merry Christmas, but also a fulfilling life. So he began then in earnest to write the new story in 1957. He wrote it in the spring of 1957. It was published in November of 57. And, and by the end of the Christmas season, it was already a bestseller. He says it was the fastest book he had ever written. He had written it so often in his own heart and in his own mind that it went very quickly, except for the ending. And he couldn't figure out how to end the story. He, he's quoted as saying this, I got hung up getting the Grinch out of the mess. I got into a situation where I sounded like a second-rate preacher, full of biblical truisms. Finally, in desperation, without making any statement whatever, I showed the Grinch with the Who's together at the table, and I made a little pun about the Grinch carving the roast beast. I'd gone through thousands of religious choices. And then after three months, that's how it came out. <laughs> so, so for a minute, put yourself in the Grinch place and listen to these words. You know them very well, but maybe they sound differently when you think about the autobiographical nature of the story. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip-top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouth will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear, and he did hear a sign rising over the snow, and it started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry. Very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And then he puzzled three hours till this puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I think what he captures in that is the contingency with you and I live. We, we could fill in the blanks. What is needed before Christmas can come? And for him to make this confession, in fact, he would later say that the cat in the hat is me on my good days and the Grinch is me on my bad days. <laughs> we can all kind of identify with that, can't we? 
What are the things that need to line up in order for Christmas? And what he discovered was the things didn't need to line up, that Christmas was going to come anyway. That it wasn't contingent on all these other things. It wasn't contingent on everything working out. It wasn't contingent on the wrappings and the boxes and the presents and any of that stuff. That Christmas was way more than that. It was the reassurance of a loving God who's in it for our good. And that somehow there ought to be this symbol in this season that we ought to have a song, a simple song in our hearts. Do we? Do we have a simple kind of joy in the fact that the God of the universe has taken interest in you and in me and is working all things together for our good? We have a strong and confident expectation, as we talked last week, not a wishful kind of hope, but a strong and expectant kind of hope confident that God is in all things working for the good. Not just our good, but the good of the world. A redemptive story, a narrative that began in a garden and ends in a city that's redemptive. It's redemptive. Oh, but what about the people that are, that doesn't really, it's not really how that figures into, there have been people trying to sabotage and undermine the good things in the world since its conception. Amen? But that's not where we put our focus. Because we believe in this story, this narrative of God's redemptive work, and one of the major moments of God's redemptive work happens in a manger in Bethlehem, and we celebrate around this moment of Christmas. And so, one of the things that's fascinating about this story of Scripture is the way the patterns and the stories seem to come at us again and again and again. And so in order for us to sort of celebrate and understand, I I was listening to a little podcast this week, and in it, uh, there was a gentleman who was tearing apart different pieces of the Scripture. And my thought when I was listening to it is, why would you do that? I mean, if you don't want to believe it, then okay. But why do you want to get inside of it and tear it apart? I say this on the radio show all the time. Uh, Listen, you may not believe this story, but I at least want you to know what it says. You may not have any faith in this book, but I at least want you to know actually what it says versus what people might tell you it says. It's a powerful narrative. And why do these patterns and cycles come over and over again? Well, one, because it's divinely inspired and it's the story of God. And so patterns do exist. But the other reason is because you and I are human beings and it takes us more than one turn in order to get it in our brains. Amen? So in order to celebrate the Song of Mary, which takes place in Luke 1, we need to back way up in the history of the story. And if you don't appreciate anything else, you must appreciate the beauty with which the narrative is written. And we settle on a woman named Hannah. And she is barren without children. And Hannah is living at a time where the world has gone silent, where God has gone silent in the world, where we don't know what God's doing. In fact, what we know about what's happening in Israel is that the priesthood, which is the primary, the chief priest is the primary leader of Israel, a true theocracy. But the priesthood has become corrupt. And Eli and his family have have become, you know, abusive and they're stealing from the people and there's all kinds of things going on and and the, and the country has lost its way, and people have lost their way, and they're discouraged, and they're overwhelmed. And God's not really doing anything. doesn't seem like God is actively doing anything. Hannah 
is a woman who is devastated. She wants to have children, but she can't. She's in a loving marriage. Her husband is very good to her and, and, and esteems her greatly. But unless she has a child, her life doesn't have much meaning. And she prays and prays and prays for a child. Year after year, she, she goes to the temple and she gives her offerings and she makes sacrifices and she prays that God would touch her. And we have that story of Hannah showing up and, and praying. And she's so overcome emotionally that we're told that she's sitting, praying, and her mouth is moving, but she's not saying anything. And Eli observes her and he comes to her and he says, uh, you, you shouldn't be in here in this state of drunkenness. You should leave. And she says, oh, oh, oh I'm, not, I'm not drunk. I'm in earnest. I'm in anguish. I'm in pain. I've prayed and prayed for God to do something to settle the contingencies of my life so that I could get on with the celebration, but he doesn't seem to hear. He tends to remain silent. And Eli prays a blessing over her. And we're told that she goes away from that experience and she does conceive and she does give birth to a son. And she names that son Samuel. And out of her joy and celebration, she takes that boy and she dedicates him to God and she gives him back to Eli. And, and Samuel is raised in, in the home of Eli as a part of the priesthood. And she can't know right now, but Samuel will become the great prophet Samuel. And Samuel will begin to speak words over the people and give guidance over the people in a way that they haven't heard or seen in literally hundreds of years, in generations. It will be Samuel who is invited by God to anoint Saul, the very first king over Israel. And it will be Samuel who deposes the first king and anoints the second king, a, 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 a young shepherd boy named David. And out of the line of David will come an heir, will come someone who is a descendant of the line of David who will be Messiah. And Hannah's response to all of this is that she sings. Now, she doesn't literally sing. I mean, maybe she did. But, you know, we, we just sang this morning at the opening Mary's song, but Mary just spoke these words of glorification, these words of magnification. And Hannah spoke words. And, and listen to the words and know this. Mary's going to have a similar experience. And some things are going to sound very much the same because people like you and me need a few chances to get it. 1 Samuel 2, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire, those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. And has them inherit a throne of honor, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken, 
The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In other words, God is doing what he's doing no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what you see, no matter what you understand, no matter what you don't understand. God is doing what he's doing. It came without boxes or ribbons or bags. It came. It showed up. God is doing something significant. And in it there is a celebration. Fast forward. Now we have Mary. Mary of the line of David. Mary who is visited by an angel. Mary who hears the word of the Lord that she will conceive and give birth to a child. And she's going to call his name Jesus. And she is living in this time of silence. In this time, we, we, we talk about it as the intertestamental period. There's 400 years between the last of the prophets writing and the opening of this event with Zechariah. Where the angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a child in extraordinary circumstances. And that that child will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then Mary has an experience. She is visited by the angel. And even under more extraordinary circumstances, she'll conceive and give birth to a child. And so as this unfolds now, this end to this time of silence, which by the way, it's not silent in the world. You know, the world continues to go on. Alexander the Great conquers the world and, you know... All that stuff happens in this period we call silent. Rome rises to power. Uh, it's just that nobody's quite sure exactly what God is doing in the big narrative. Everybody's having a little God moment in the small narrative. But the big narrative is a little lost. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe some of us have lost the big narrative. We're... We're still trusting and hoping for the little narrative, and we still feel a little bit. Not, but the big narrative, we feel like we don't see anymore. We don't understand where'd the world go? How did it happen? What's going on? Where will it all end? Where are we headed? The story says we're headed for redemption. We're headed for redemption. And out of that silence, the angel speaks to Mary. And when the angel speaks, Mary responds with a song. I mean, we had to put it to music later, but song. Luke 1, 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's been merciful and mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. It's so interesting how parallel these two songs are from two different women in two different eras of time. God doing two different things in the kingdom in two different ways. One to the king and kingdom of Israel and one to the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a savior is given. And it's glad tidings of great joy. And I see three things in this song that I think matter to you and me that will help you and I welcome the song. Everybody doing okay? 
What are the contingencies upon which a Merry Christmas is waiting for you? What are the contingencies in your heart and mind upon which a fulfilling life is waiting? Mary and Hannah both identify this. The song belongs to the humble. The songs belong to the humble. To those who practice a kind of humility. There there is a great deal of humility in both of their responses, but especially in Mary. Mary says, may it be to me as you have spoken. May your will be done in me as it is on me. Just do what you need to do. Now, I don't know about you, but that would not have been my response to the situation. And in fact, it is not my response to daily life. So what's going on is that Mary is a very young girl. Given the ages at which young girls were betrothed in the first century, she's probably 14 or 15, maybe she's 16 years old, or she might be very old and 17. But generally speaking, she's young. And an angel has appeared to her and said, Hey, I got some news for you. You're going to conceive and give birth to a child. You're going to call that child Jesus. And wide-eyed Mary says, I'm not married. How's this going to work out? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I would have had some more questions. I mean, I might have immediately said, you do know that this is going to be a problem, right? I mean, you're talking pregnant, pregnant. You're not talking like philosophically pregnant. It's not a pregnant pause. It's not a pregnant moment. You're talking like an actual baby's coming out the other side of this, right? You do know I'm 15 and betrothed to be married, which means I'm not married yet. You do know this is going to cause some problems. I don't even want to think about what Joseph is going to say. (laughs) Amen? Maybe it's because she's young. And she doesn't yet know how to be cynical and analytical. We learn that the older we get. Oh, God's going to do something great? Well, I'm going to need a spreadsheet, and I'm going to need some very specific things in order for me to understand exactly what you're doing and where this is headed. I'll have plenty of faith when you explain it to me. Is that just me? What's contingent for me is you letting me know not only what you're going to do, but how you intend to accomplish it and how it's going to affect me in the meantime. Amen? And why do we not sing and welcome the season? Because we have so many contingencies, and one of them is this. I'm going to need you to fix things in a way that makes sense to me. That's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need you to explain it to me, and in fact, what I would prefer is if you just take my list of contingencies and fix these. And if you take my list of contingencies and you fix them, I will feel that you are speaking and answering my prayers. But if you do not, I will feel you are distant and I won't feel a song. I won't feel the Merry Christmas. That somehow Mary, in her youthfulness, is able to do something that most of us are not. She's able to say out loud, you're God and I'm not. I don't need to know all that. I don't need to have all those answers. I don't need to figure all of that out. That is not on me. My job is to humble myself and be willing. Your job is to figure it out. (laughs) You're God and I'm not. 
you're in charge and I'm not. I can let go of this. I can surrender this. I can lay this down. We said last week, we need to get some things for Christmas, but we need to get rid of some things for Christmas. And humility simply says, I, I'm going to stop asking that you explain it all to me. I'm going to believe that you are in it for my good. And not just my good. The good of my family, the good of my children, the good of my community, the good of my church, the good of my country, the good of the world. I, I believe you're in it. You have set the world on its foundations, Hannah says. This is my father's world. I trust it. I know it doesn't look like, I know it looks like there's a bunch of smart people in control and all the dumb people have faith. Did I say that out loud? I did. <laughs> Amen. We all feel that at some point, don't we? Turns out humility just says, you know, God, I know you're doing things that I, I don't fully understand. But may it be to me as you have spoken. I'll rest there. I'll abide there. I'll live there. It's a song of humility. It's also a song of celebration. It's a song of celebration. Uh, Hannah and Mary both come to understand some things that are pretty important. That in the mundane parts of life, there are things that are incredibly sacred. Amen? That in the mundane parts of life, there are things that are incredibly sacred. But we don't tend to stop and celebrate them. We tend to be quickly moving on to the next thing that needs to get resolved. So therefore, we're missing some of the mundane things that are cause for celebration. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1, these words, Brothers and sisters, think of where you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things in the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. In other words, the world will tell you a ton of priorities that you ought to look at and you ought to celebrate. But the things that we really ought to celebrate are not those things. They're the things underneath them. A bunch of years ago, almost 30 years ago now, I uh, kind of, in a shocking way, was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember, you know, kind of the before and the after. And the before was there were lots of stuff that needed to get fixed. You know what I'm saying? We just had a new baby. We had our third new baby. We were living in the house next door. Uh, that would be the the fourth girl in the house with one bathroom. It was kind of cramped. We were, Cindy was working. It was chaotic. There was a lot going on. The church was kind of, you know, doing what the church was doing. And there were lots of contingencies for God to work on. There were lots of things. And then the next day, you find out, the news, and then all I wanted was the life I had. That's all. I, I didn't need any of that to get fixed. I just needed to be back there. Just give me yesterday's problems because they are so much better than today's. Just let me have back the mundane life of getting up and making lunches and going to work and coming home and figuring out dinner and cleaning up and doing laundry. Just let me have the mundane back. And that's true of all of us. 
except we forget to celebrate the mundane. I love who my girls have become, but you know what? I miss jumping out of the car and having little girls run up to have to hold my hand. If it happened now, it'd be weird. <laughs> Amen? But to somehow celebrate the mundane, you have it in your life. You have it right now. It's not like we haven't been through trauma. It's not like we haven't been through difficulty. But there is plenty to celebrate in your story. And there's plenty to celebrate in my story. And what Hannah and Mary both come to understand is that God takes these mundane things. What we thought was so elevated isn't elevated. It's brought down. And what we thought was so base isn't base. It's lifted up. It happens in both of their songs. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate the mundane. Think about it. Ask God to show. Give me the eyes to see. As I walk through this week, there are things to sing about. There are things in which to break into song. There are reasons for me to be happy and to be in this spirit of Christmas. I, I can sing the simple song. I, I live in humility and I celebrate. I celebrate what is mundane. And finally, number three, it's a song of abundance. It's a song of abundance. He's filled the hungry with good things. They both talk about the hungry getting fed. They both, in their songs, are talking, because it's such a symbol. And the symbol is this. You know, some people seem to have a lot, but it turns out that's not the answer. In God's great grace, he fills up the hungry. It's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend on money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, you'll give them a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. It is a message of abundance. I, I, I'm betting that, that most of us live in scarcity. There's just not enough. I don't know how. I don't know what. I, I need more of this. I need more of that. I don't know. I can't. It's a story of abundance. My God is able to supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Am I looking in the right places? Am I asking in the right way? Am I seeking? I read a devotional this morning, and in it, the, the author said, I find when I sit in the presence of God that my thoughts begin to form around his thoughts, and my feelings begin to form around his feelings. And if I fail to sit in that space, then I fail to get reformed. I keep standing over there asking God to help me instead of entering into his presence and letting him change me. It's a humble song. It is a song of celebration. And it is a song of abundance. And so my prayer for you as we make our way through this season 
is that you find that simple song. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear, and he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, and it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook when he saw with a shocking surprise every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. We're going to share communion. The symbolism of this moment is simply this. We throw our hearts open and we welcome Christ into the center of our lives and he nourishes us from the inside out. You don't need to be a member of this congregation to participate, just that you've confessed your sins and received forgiveness. And if you've never done that, we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. So gather your elements. If you're online with us this morning, gather those at home. We'll pray a blessing over them and a commitment. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the season. We're thankful for what it means. We know there is a song for each of us. We know that we're invited to set aside our contingencies and go ahead and let Christmas come. Go ahead and let you invade our hearts and invade our spirits and invade our homes and invade our minds. Go ahead and drive back the doubt and the darkness and the anxiety and the ifs and the whats. To remind us that you are at work and you are working all things together for good. And these moments in time, the birth of the baby Samuel, the birth of the baby Jesus, are just highlights of the truth that we can't see everything you're doing. And sometimes when the world seems silent and you seem silent and you seem to not hear what we're praying or asking or seeking, still you're at work and you are faithful. And there's a plan, and you're working the plan, and the plan is for our good, and the good of our family, and the good of our community, and the good of our world. And we want to lean in, and we want to sing the song. We prepare our hearts for this table, a symbol of welcoming you into the core of our lives and asking you to nourish what's starving to feed what's hungry, to meet the needs that we can't even speak. We need you. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. So thankful that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And now I pray that you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. Here in the room, online, perhaps somebody that will share a moment of communion later in this week. For all of those elements, we dedicate them to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and eat 
in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And now, God, please go with us. Open our hearts to the simple hope and the simple song of this season and teach us and grow us as we celebrate you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.